Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to The Nest on Clubhouse. My name is Jim Chu in San Francisco, California, and I'm the CEO of Untapped Global. Our goal at Untapped is to connect international investors with entrepreneurs in frontier markets, including those in Africa and Asia. We host weekly discussions on Clubhouse about entrepreneurship and investing, and once a month, we host pitch sessions with startups and investors from around the world. You can find out more and follow us at Untapped Global on Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can join our WhatsApp community by going to untapped-global.com and clicking on Engage. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from two entrepreneurs who very recently closed funding rounds for their early stage companies operating in Nigeria and Rwanda. We'll hear how they did it, and in the second half of the hour, we'll open the conversation to, uh, to the audience for questions as well as your funding stories so that we get your experience and insights. I should note that this conversation is being live streamed and recorded, so if you have friends who appreciate the conversation or are not on Clubhouse, they can find us on LinkedIn under Untapped Global and listen in to comment via the LinkedIn event or YouTube chat box. We'll do our best to read comments and questions we see in the chat and bring them to this conversation. And if they miss it, you can find this chat and past discussions on our podcast at anchor.fm slash untapped global. Well, without further ado, let's get started. First to our panelists, we have Uguem Aneo from Shift Power Nigeria and Josh Whale from Ampersand Rwanda. Uh, Uguem, would you like to start with an intro? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited uh, to be a part of this conversation. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Shift Power Solutions. Uh, we're an energy technology company that specializes in building IoT hardware and integrated software to help renewable and alternative energy companies uh, monitor, manage, and control uh, their portfolio of assets. Uh, specifically, we operate out of Nigeria, um, where we're helping Energy service providers increase operational efficiency and improve asset performance. Great. That sounds uh, very interesting. Um, and over to you, Josh, a quick intro about Ampersand. Hi, yeah. Hi, I'm Josh Whale. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Ampersand. Uh, we are a e-mobility company in the business of climate change. Uh, we founded Epicent to offer a transport energy solution in a really mass market segment that's uh, better and cheaper from the customer's point of view uh, and just happens to be electric. Uh, we found that segment with the 30 million motorbike taxis in Africa and particularly in, sub, uh, in uh, East Africa, the 5 million or so bottom bodders and, and delivery motorbikes. Uh, and we've really sort of really tailored our business and product uh, to, to fit that market. In particular, we offer a battery swap system. So we have uh, battery swaps across a network of uh, charging stations uh, distributed around the city of Kigali and, this, uh, and, and that's what we're uh, planning on expanding. We also have a motorcycle uh, that we offer as well that has more power than a petrol bike and is cheaper to operate and, uh, and to acquire. Gotcha. No, thanks for the summary. So we have um, two energy-related companies, one from East Africa and one from West Africa. So love to hear your stories about how you've closed the last funding round. Um, can you tell us a little more detail about your last funding round and um, a little bit about the journey in getting to, to close? Uh, who'd like to start? Who, Wim? 
Sure, I'll get started. Um, so we just recently closed a raising an additional 3.1 million towards a, a second seed round that was anchored by Total Carbon Neutrality Ventures. That's the venture arm of uh, Total. You might know them as the energy slash oil and gas company, as well as SoftBank being one of their first major plays uh, on the continent in this sector. Um, we are also joined by uh, investors that span the energy tech space like Powerhouse out of Oakland uh, to local investors like Lofty Inc. Um, amongst others. Uh, really the objective of this round is we had uh, built out our entire platform. So that's industrial grade hardware, um, IoT hardware, as well as software. Um, and we had about uh, two to 3,000 kilowatts of energy assets being managed by Shift Technology. And at this point, we really needed the additional capital to essentially increase our operational capacity. Um, uh, the, the growth that's happening in uh, distributed energy resources across the entire continent, but certainly um, we're seeing it in West Africa as well, has been tremendous over the past couple of years which has meant that uh, this round was really necessary to make sure that we can deliver and keep up with the growth that's happening in our, in our customers' portfolios. Uh, so that means doing quite a bit of hiring. So if we have people that are looking for fun work um, in, in energy, energy tech, uh, emerging markets, you can uh, find some opportunities on our website, um, but it's also meant market expansion. So most of our customers today are in Nigeria uh, but they're growing and we're starting to serve uh, people outside of the market as well. And your website is Shift Power, and that's uh, S-H-Y-F-T, right? Shiftpower.com? Yes. Got it. Great. Uh, well, thanks for that intro. Uh, Josh, let's hear a little bit about so your business and this funding round that you just closed. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. I can I can say uh, for sure, um, it's not not been easy with the with the year of COVID as well. I think part of our uh, our challenge in fundraising has been that we're we're kind of a, a new sector. Um, you know, e-mobility is still very new as as something at all. I mean, I think when we started off in 2016, I was sort of probably known as that that weird guy who's trying to do electric motorbikes in, in Africa. Um, and I, now we've seen more companies and uh, sort of pop up in the e-mobility space. We've got Asobo with electric boats in uh, uh, boat motors in uh, on Lake Victoria. We've got Ox Delivers here in Rwanda with electric trucks. We've got several electric motorbike startups across the region. Uh, Max in Nigeria is adding uh, some some electric motorbikes to to their uh, to their business as well. Um, so it's it's definitely been maturing, but it's uh, I think we've found really a, a challenge has been particularly here in the more regional East Africa market uh, of of venture capital funds that uh, I think I think they generally expect to uh, companies to be at a uh, further stage with uh, with revenue, so that most of them want to see kind of hundred thousand dollars of revenue per month. Um, you know, off the back of the typical five hundred k seed seed round plus plus grants, and that's all well and good for you know for an app or for a maybe a, a solar lamp or something like that. But for you know for an electric vehicle, it's just a there's just a bit more complexity, a bit more R&D, a bit more capital tied up uh, to start really hitting uh, hitting volumes and, and sales. Uh, you know, I think, I don't think 
you know, Tesla kind of reached $100,000 a month in revenue from uh, from car sales on the back of a 500k seed round and and some <laughs> and, and a couple of grants, right. you know, much higher um, upfront costs, right? Yeah, and so uh, you know, there's 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 just a, a bigger inventive step that's needed to get there. Now, we would certainly argue that the returns are well worth the effort, um, but it just takes a little bit more of a deeper dip into the pockets to um, to sort of hit those revenue numbers. Another real challenge that we found is that just that on a Series A. Um, uh, a lot of the the VC funds out in the region do really want to see a want to use a DCF to do valuation, or will even come in with project finance uh, valuation methodologies. Which you know, when we go to Silicon Valley and fundraise, um, you know, people just laugh at. You know, they'll they'll. Uh, I think a lot of the a lot of the investors in the region do come from a uh, more of a private equity background or investment banking background and and the the whole uh, silicon valley thing is a little bit little bit of a cultural shift um, and so in the end we we did raise uh, from from silicon valley um, firstly we last year we had a term sheet in front of us i'm not going to name name names but we had a term sheet in front of us at the end of march and then within the first week or so of of april uh, as we were working on the draft um the the investor pulled it back because COVID numbers were surging in california and that's been a been a tough precipitated or was the start of a tough year um, um but we uh we were grateful to our grant funders at um, shell foundation and uh, and usaid who really uh really helped us through there uh, and then um yeah then we were very glad to be approached by uh, ecosystem integrity fund um, around Christmas time, and and you know they move they move quickly and professionally, um, and uh, and here we are in at the end of April with a couple of weeks a you know, few weeks now ago that we uh, signed uh, uh, signed our Series A so uh, for three and a half million US, which is uh, yeah which is massively catalytic for us. No, but congratulations on that. So I know that both of you guys' businesses is very capital heavy cap capex heavy in particular um on you know your side josh obviously you're building things and as you mentioned it's not the same as building an app um and then on your side when it's it's really much about deploying hardware at enterprises which is also quite capital intensive so did you find that the type of investors that were available to you in your markets uh in east africa and west africa uh, you had to look in some not odd places, but in outside of the usual suspects in order to capture financing for CapEx? Absolutely. Um, I think I echo a lot of the sentiments um, that was that were just shared with the, the challenge of us in finding investors early stage and addressing the CapEx of for us, because we had you know high voltage industrial grade hardware, it meant that the amount of testing, prototyping, I mean, all that stuff you have to do early stage just to even get a pilot is far more cap capital intensive than you know iterating on a on a mobile app. Um, and so when we were looking for investors, our earliest investors were actually uh, corporate strategics or folks really in deep tech um, or that had a lot of experience investing in. Um, hardware or manufacturing type innovation, um, because they, they could really understand, uh, you know, what it takes to, um, to get to uh, certain stages in revenue and whatnot. So that unfortunately meant that a lot of them were actually our early stage investors weren't local, um, or they 
more open to global markets, but they're really coming from um, Silicon Valley, from Europe, uh, from Japan. And uh, that allowed us to kind of get to the point that we were for this round where we could actually have uh, deployments, um, early revenue coming in and kind of de-risk the concerns or the discomfort that some investors have with, uh, you know, capital intensive type ventures. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that both of both companies uh, raised most of the round, if not all. I, I don't know what percentage are coming from local investors, but uh, most of that is coming from international investors with um, participation from Silicon Valley on, on your side, Josh, and on your side from a pretty broad range of French, Japanese, and otherwise. Uh, how, how do you get them comfortable with the local market conditions? and uh, help them understand both the opportunity and the risks appropriately. Yeah, I, I, I guess, Josh, feel free to jump in. Um, well, you know, for us, it was some of like our corporate strategics, they're familiar or they're deploying products like ours in the market. And then secondly, for our business, we really set it up to mimic the um, operations and structure of existing companies that are reputable and scaling in the market. So looking at companies like Schneider Electric and other energy tech companies that are deploying assets um, in the market and how they essentially structure and organize their business so that um, when they might have concerns about, um, you know, just doing business in these markets, operations, logistics, you know, how we're structured, governance, um, that it looks similar to uh, models that have been successful in the market. Um, so that was kind of key. Um, but again, early stage uh, strategics, uh, there was something about them that allowed them to understand market dynamics. So either they were doing um, infrastructure projects in other emerging markets across South Asia, Central and Latin America. So you know, I always stress to founders that are raising that, um, you know, there's a certain level of convincing you should do with your investors, but if it's too much and they just might not be your right investor, if they're totally uncomfortable with the market, um, then that just might not be a good fit, even if it seems like they're excited about your product. So it does mean that it might be a bit more challenging to find, um, to kind of gather that pool of uh, investors that are a good fit. Yeah, we just Go ahead, Josh, please. I was gonna say, yeah, we certainly found like, well, uh, obviously getting um, getting comfortable with the with the market on the ground. Um, you know, our investors uh, were were and are uh, eager to to have co investors um, who are uh, who are familiar with the local context and who who are a bit closer um, closer on the ground. And we do have uh, factory in, uh, ventures. Our seed investors still uh, still very much involved. Um, and uh, and with a presence in in the region, lots of experience in the region, so that's a big um, that's a big help uh, having co investors to particularly ideally participating in the round to to give that degree of confidence. Um, I think you know, also just to uh, re related to the earlier question, we uh, you know being a hardware business does does limit the the uh, number of um, VC investors who who are interested. There are plenty of investors who just don't do don't do anything related to hardware. Um, so there's or a, there's a CapEx heavy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anything CapEx heavy. And I think, you know, we we have been, um, you know, we have pleasantly discovered in the, in the course of building this business model, uh, the, the relative the relative modesty of the capital intensity of our model is because 
we're, we're dealing with this B2B market where the assets are sweat very heavily, um, but, uh, but still, it's, there's still money that is being spent on buying physical objects and there's uh, supply chain complexity and, and uncertainty that you know, a software firm doesn't really have to worry about. Um, yeah, so there's it's definitely yeah narrowed the narrowed the number of investors. I think also what was what what seems to have made, have made us stand out in uh, ecosystem integrity funds EIF's um, view was that you know we were really targeting a mass market segment and we were really focused on putting something on the road that's uh, you know in the context of climate change and and the the overall clean energy transition something that that was cost competitive. Uh, with fuel in a really mass market segment. I mean, there were probably 500 e-motorcycle electric two-wheeler startups out there out there on the road, but almost all are really focused on a much more niche. You know, starting with that, with the you know, the motorcycle equivalent of the the Tesla Roadster, right? Like the the top spiky right. end of the Hershey's Kiss business model, and then with their idea that they'll work on down and very few make that transition into a, a much more mass market accessible, affordable vehicle and out of, out, you know, out of the garages of um, uh, big mansions in Menlo Park, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so, so that, that's interesting. And I, I find uh, it interesting that um, the pandemic, you did this during the pandemic and while it's um, perhaps assume that things were a lot harder during the pandemic for fundraising purposes. And I know, Josh, uh, you guys were impacted by, uh, by that um, from your first funder. But I, you know, more openly, I'd like to ask the question, has the, the lockdowns and the pandemic helped or hurt your fundraising efforts? Because I've seen in, in some ways that uh, the fact that people are more digital and more able to converse uh, across borders via Zoom and otherwise, that has actually helped communication in some instances. How, how has that affected you? And this is a question for both yeah. of you. Yeah, for me, it really meant um, I was able to engage, I mean, far more investors and I think I might have been able to otherwise. Um, it wasn't traveling, you know, to get coffee or spend weeks in one region or the other. Um, and there was just a lot more virtual type of events, virtual communication. So intros are happening and, you know, points of contact are happening um, at a greater frequency than I think perhaps might have happened otherwise. Um, yeah. yeah, so that that was definitely apparent. But I do think there was a downside. And I, it depends on the type of founder. But for me personally, I really like to connect with people in person. Um, it's easier to kind of just not like jump straight into like, okay, here's a meeting, here's a deck, let's go. You know, it's, um, there's a level of being able to walk into the office, show what's going on or grab a coffee um, that I think made things more personable. And, um, uh, you know, and as an early stage founder, a lot of fundraising and decision-making is happening, uh, but based on how much they believe, investors believe in you as a founder. And so you had to kind of figure out how to kind of convey um, who you are and, um, just those less tangible things that sit outside of a deck, um, still figure out how to be effective with that virtually or via Zoom. And I did find that to be a bit different and challenging. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely can see the two sides, especially 
uh, the side where connections and introductions and can be faster and, and greater in number, but ultimately um, getting to know your investor or investor getting to know an entrepreneur, which is an important aspect of early stage investing, that, that's harder to establish that rapport and mutual understanding. I can definitely see that. Yeah, I think we've also had a mixed bag. I mean, I think there's definitely been a lot more, a lot more up events and, and interactions like like this one today um, that are that are possible. And you know, Kigali is a really long way from the the centers of finance in mm-hmm. um, uh, out there in the rest of the world. We just don't have those natural. You know, we just don't bump into um, VC investors at the local bar, um, right? Um, in the same way, I, we were. Fortunate enough that um, that during during diligence, uh, someone from from EIF actually came out. We had an, a window before Nairobi went into its recent recent lockdown. E- EIF um, is um, the fund that ended up doing the Series A. Thanks. Yes. Yes. The uh, Ecosystem gotcha. Integrity Fund, um, and came out, and you know, it was it really hit home just how much of the how much you can get done, how much further you can get with it with that person to person. I think particularly around, uh, we, so we also went across, so we, uh, we were here in, in Rwanda and also went across to Kenya where we are, we're expanding to, and we're able to bring EIF along on um, meetings with customers like out there on the street and with, in a bunch of different meetings with, with um, potential partners that we might get with, uh, might, might link up with, and I think for the investor, it's really great to see how uh, see the interest from the customers and the reaction from our existing customers. We got to go to you know visit the home of one of our drivers who can really you know in their own words explain and show the what the value proposition is and that they they believe in what what we're offering um, and the difference it makes uh, for them, as well as just the excitement and validation from meeting with um, you know meeting with some pretty serious potential partners who who really know the industry and uh and are excited to be working with us i mean it's really it's really hard to get all that from from zoom calls and yeah um, of course yeah we did some virtual uh we did innovate a little bit we uh so the usual kind of visit of the business and interviews and introductions to staff just showing our production line we did did sort of virtual video tours um and sort of had and being being a bit innovative with uh, with Wi-Fi dongles and uh, <laughs> awkward camera angles, but um, managed to uh, manage to get there with a with a bit of a sense of humor. Uh, yeah, and, and how well did the? I'm very curious how well the uh, the virtual tours, for example, works. Did that? How successful were they? Pretty well. I mean, you know, production values were not uh, not exactly. CNN, I would say, um, but uh, you know, we organized it, had a had a had a run through, um, kind of uh, with with different members of the team who were say responsible. Um, so we had the tire Harry Motos responsible for a lot of the, the battery assembly, showing off uh, part of the vehicle, part of that, and then we had my colleague Alp showing part of the battery assembly, and then then part of the vehicles and. Um, you know, so there's a chance also just to get a get a feel for the um, for the team members and how they're able to explain what they've done and what why we've done it and the processes that we've gone through and improvements and the different generations of the technology that we've gone through through the process. Um, 
you know, I, I would I would definitely recommend it as an option uh, to to people, and it also means that you can show things that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't normally show. Um, right. You you wouldn't normally show. Doing it live also means you've got to you have some more protection. I think around IP, it's not sort of something that should really be 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 forwarded around and put on the internet. Um, so you can show show really the the more sensitive parts of of your uh, process. Yeah, got it. Uh, so no, no, very interesting. Thanks for those stories. I, I do want to open up a bit for comments and questions from the audience. So please feel free if you'd like to um, ask a question or make a comment or even share your story, please raise your hand and we'll bring you on stage. Uh, we do have uh, Bastian um, on uh, the stage as well, Bastian Muda, and I'd uh, love to invite him and introduce yourself and if you have a question or a comment or a story to relate, please jump right in. Sure. Um, yeah, first of all, thanks for inviting me on stage. I actually wasn't planning on joining this room. I kind of stumbled uh, into it. Um, and you stumbled in the right place. Question. Yeah. Uh, and I'm uh, from the Siemens uh, Foundation. So uh, we're actually um, active in the e-mobility space. So uh, Josh, uh, I know you from the distance. <laughs> Uh, what you guys are doing, uh, and I'm coming from the investor side uh, before I also joined. Uh, I worked in a social venture fund, um, and I have a remark and a question, and uh, because I joined late, uh, really sorry that already was asked. So maybe a quick comment on the like virtual due diligence. Um, what I've seen, what our co-investors are doing, and what we are also doing, and both from my previous firm and now, um, it really depends on the maturity of the business. Um, and given that the kind of space that we were active in, this uh, early stage space, um, you really have to visit uh, the company and be on the ground because you're very much um, investing in the team and the company and the leadership team. Uh, and for that, you just have to meet them in person and see the facilities and see how the operation side and the production side is set up, talk to the customers. And that's like, unfortunately necessary. Um, uh, if it's a more later stage company and there are a bunch of investors already in there that you're very, very comfortable with, um, then we're also comfortable just tagging along because we trust the people that have done the initial due diligence. And for example, actually just yesterday, um, we signed a few uh, disbursements, uh, but this was all for companies we already knew. So we felt comfortable doing that, even though they are affected uh, by COVID and um, we're taking that into consideration. But I think we wouldn't be comfortable investing into a company without actually visiting them on the ground. And that's unfortunately the downside if you sit in Europe. Um, and that's also the reason why I actually want to have people <laughs> in East Africa. Um, uh, if we don't know the company and we also don't know the co-investors, I think that would be a hard one. Um, and then to my question, and that goes to Josh. Um, and first of all, like uh, congratulations on the great work that you're doing. You, def you guys are definitely amongst the pioneers in this space. And uh, you described it, it's, it was our tough fundraising process. Uh, but I have a feeling it, it will be getting easier in future. I mean, the topic is getting a lot of attention now and there, a lot of money will be flowing into the sector. 
Um, which can, can we get, get you to commit to that, Bastian? <laughs> I, I, I can't make a verbal commitment. And we're probably not the ticket sizes that you're looking for. Uh, <laughs> I think you have outgrown us. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, you know the typical suspects. Uh, there are no kind of jumping into that. So I think there will be a lot. I'm sure there will be a lot more money in, in this space. But my question actually is, and that goes to your kind of business model, but also in general to like, asset heavy business models that we financed before or that I've seen um, in Africa is like once they grow, um, the working capital requirement really, really shoots up, uh, of course, and uh, like there's a large need um, to kind of pre-finance the assets. And my question is, because I have not seen someone really solving that, What's well, kind of the long-term solution for this? Because ultimately these companies uh, without knowing end up to be kind of a mini bank or like a large MFI, which is a completely different business model. And you carry a lot of risk on your balance sheet, um, which yeah, uh, can be really risky if basically sudden, if suddenly the cost of capital changes, which, which can happen, or like maybe a credit line doesn't get renewed. Um, so I, I would just be curious about your thinking on that problem, or if you actually see it as a problem at all. Thanks so much. Yeah, sure. Fair, uh, fair question, and one that we certainly get get asked a lot. Um, and I think we, we we've been very happy to uh, uh, discover. Well, we've been pleasantly surprised over the past couple of years um, to discover that the the overall capital need relative to the, the market size and the revenue is, is fairly modest. Um, we've projected a capital need of 75 to $100 million to electrify all motorbikes in Rwanda by 2025. Um, that's with new, new sales of motorcycles, not, not retrofits. Um, and that's partly driven by the low cost of the physical infrastructure needed for the charging stations. Uh, we can build a basic swap station for about $5,000. Uh, we can build, and we can build larger, more economical ones that start at around $13,000. Uh, so, you know, we could cover the whole city of Nairobi with about 40 stations for, you know, less than the cost of a conventional petrol station. Uh, the batteries do remain on our books and, and that's the, that's a big asset, but what we have also Ha happily discovered some, you know, I don't want to take full credit for it somewhat by accident, is that the um, the rapid utilization rate. So we focus very much on the B2B market segment. We're not really in the in the business of supplying private customers. And, you know, that's 99, 98% of all motorbikes on the road in East Africa are commercial motorbikes, right? So in Rwanda, they're doing about 150 kilometers a day. And Kenya seems to be around the, the 100, 115 kilometers a day mark. And so these the batteries themselves are cycling so so rapidly that they're paying off their original capex um, very quickly. And so to put in context, the sort of seventy-five to one hundred million dollar mark in in Rwanda for that's about a hundred hundred and fifteen thousand motorcycles, and uh, that's about a third, maybe even a quarter of what is spent annually on fuel purchases by motorbike taxis in this market. So if your capex to electrify the whole fleet is only a third of, of just one year's revenue just on the just on the fuel sales, which is the largest slice, but it's there's also motorcycle sales and asset financing and servicing and spare parts, uh, also uh, lucrative areas to, to make money. You know, that's, that's pretty achievable. 
Um, and you know, that's that's to put that in context, that's over half of the national vehicle fleet yeah. of the country being being electrified, country of 12, 13 million people in the middle of Africa, you know, in the in the context of climate change and the targets we meet. You know, there's understandably we we are getting a lot of interest from um, organizations like the World Bank, you know, that's a that's a very achievable, something you can take to COP26 and wave in front of um, your Western governments with a pretty modest price tag. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a clear path there to get things done. For East Africa, there's uh, 5 million motorbike taxis, larger market for sure. We're sort of looking at 2030 uh, as the target. That's about $8 billion a year revenue and fuel sales. We project a capital need debt and equity of around uh, two to three billion dollars um, just because the the kilometers driven per day are a little bit less in kenya and so on i think we originally projected around 1.4 billion i think it's 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 that's creeping up a bit but it's still a fraction of annual uh, fuel sales yeah okay cool well, one quick follow-up question um so if i'm understanding you correctly you're basically betting on financing this through international development finance um, organizations, DFIs, and also the terms that they're offering that would work with your business model. I, I mean, I'm hoping to see a blend. Um, I'm hoping the private sector will will come into the game. We're also uh, in discussions with local banks. Um, usually, the the issue with them is collateralization. Um, you know, particularly they, they want typically African banks want land in buildings um, as. Uh, as collateral, but they are uh, very now by now experienced with working with guarantee funds, and there are there are a few institutions that offer such loan guarantees for such things. So that's a way to get pretty good value for money for DFIs as well. So we'll, we think that will play a role, um, you know. But but uh, I think this is still it's still early days, and I think there is there's going to be a process of evolution. There's a lot to be learned from, say, the solar home system sector in Africa. Uh, which is also an asset-based business. Um, we would argue the unit economics are far better for a motorcycle with $240 a month revenue instead of $7 a month per customer revenue and a cash-generating asset that's urban and not in a, in a rural area. But there are, there are parallels in the types yeah. of um, securitization of, of um, uh, say, loan, loan agreements that can be, can be done and other ways to monetize um, the asset, uh, the, the yeah. sort of collateralized so just, asset of the motorcycle itself. Just jumping in there. So just as a bit of a plug for Untapped Global, Bastion, that, that's actually what we do. So <laughs> yeah, good we, point. We, we really focused on uh, asset financing of CapEx heavy businesses, such yeah, as I just looked at you guys. Shift I just followed and Josh. <laughs> and, um, and the idea is exactly what you're saying, right? There's this gap there between um, uh, companies raising equity and uh, companies getting to a stage where they can borrow money from, from commercial banks and, and otherwise. And we think that there is a incredible opportunity to finance fast-growing companies like Josh's and provide the CapEx financing in a way that is safe and secure and providing really good returns for investors. And that, a lot of that is built around a different way of lending. You know, a DFI or a commercial bank will look at things in a very conventional way, you know, what's your balance sheet? What's your collateral? How do we, how do we de-risk it through legal means and through the collateral that you have on your balance sheet? Uh, the way we do it is to really look at the uh, revenue streams generated by digital assets, because things are digitizing so quickly in Africa, uh, we're able to capture revenue streams. And so, um, I, I think echoing what Josh was saying earlier, I think there's great opportunities around the corner. Um, some of that 
you know, has already been pioneered in different sectors such as uh, consumer solar and so on, but really applied in a different way that can make for secure investing and good returns while helping companies like Josh's scale up very quickly. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and actually somebody mentioned I should put it into you guys. Um, one quick thing because then I have to jump off on another call. I mean, uh, I would be happy to stay in touch uh, with all of you. I mean, I guess for the current offers that we're having, uh, like we're looking into early stage companies in the immobility sector and they're very, actually very happy to support. So feel free to reach out. And then let's say for the more later stage companies as the ones that are on this panel, um, there we might be able to engage end of this year without promising something because as you know the corporate foundation things always take longer um, than you expect <laughs> but it's kind mm -hmm. of on uh, it's kind of on my plan at least um, and uh, yeah would love to um, also have a conversation uh, uh, with you guys from untapped um, because a lot of the thinking um, that i'm also putting into um, the kind of financing gaps is really the, the, the kind of the problem that, that you're solving. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, we're happy to chat. that and... I stumbled across this room. I'm, yeah, um, yeah that, one that's last what Clubhouse thing. is about. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, please. One last thing. We actually have a, a super tiny grant call open right now, which will close tomorrow. But this is for e-mobility companies, which are kind of a female female management team. Uh, which is a very tricky segment to find, um, uh, <laughs> uh, which we knew, but we tried anyways, and it's, it's really tiny grants, uh, but we just wanted to see if there's something we're missing. Um, unfortunately, it closes tomorrow, but if anyone knows mm. someone, yeah, uh, feel free uh, to send it our way, we'd be happy. No, thanks for that. Yeah. We'll definitely get in touch. And I might have uh, a couple of uh, opportunities for you, so. Yeah, and my LinkedIn um, is on the bio. Cool. Perfect. That was really great. Cool. Unfortunately, I have to jump out, but I'm super happy I, I stumbled across uh, this room. Cool. And thank, thank you. And join us next, next week or we in following weeks as well. Because we have yeah, these sessions. I'll, I'll follow week. you. Cool. Thank Wonderful. you. Wonderful. Thank you. Great to meet you, Bastian. Thanks for that. And we have uh, others uh, online with comments and questions. Now we have Darren from Cape Town. Darren, would you like to introduce yourself and um, give us your comment or question? Hi everybody, uh, thanks so much, Jim, and uh, congrats to the two entrepreneurs that raised some capital. Um, so in my spare time, I, I, I collect data about uh, all the various startups that have raised capital and, and put it on a, a database. Um, so my question is kind of related to that. I'd just like to get um, the two founders, what their thoughts are on entrepreneurs and founders sharing um, sort of deal information once they raise capital, um, because obviously in Africa, there's not everybody discloses um, when they raise capital. Um, I'd just like to get your thoughts in terms of pros and cons for doing that. And, and as far as I could tell, I think both of you have actually disclosed the fundraisers that you've, you've, you've finished. Um, and have you seen any benefit to doing that, to disclosing the amount of capital raised, who your funders were, et cetera? Um, and some of the concerns you had prior to, to kind of sharing that, that news information. That's my question. Yeah, great question. And an interesting one that doesn't come up uh, often enough. Um, we, we, you know, we generally, actually, I don't think I've, we've done it yet, but we generally post on, uh, post on Crunchbase, um, you know, round, round information, round history. Um, I think we found it very helpful 
to 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 uh, to publicize the recent raise. We've um, garnered a lot of lot of attention from it. A lot of people, a lot of potential uh, partners have come out of the woodwork and and approached us um, that we're excited about as well. I think it's also been very helpful with our friends and, and partners over in the in the government of, of Rwanda. We've had a, um, a recent policy announcements to promote e-mobility. I think it certainly helped that uh, that this has uh, this investment has come through. There's, it's validating, and um, you know, I think that governments are keen to see that that those investment dollars then flow into into the local economy, um, and that's not to not to take all our money and run off somewhere else with it. Um, uh, and I think overall, you know, we are a, a um, environmentally and socially driven business, and I think it's great to just get the message out there that e-mobility, in our case, that e-mobility is. Um, you know, something for everybody. It's not just uh, not just something for um, George Clooney and his Tesla Roadster and and wealthy people in in, in wealthy countries, but really that um, e-mobility is, is is really here and and for everyone, and maybe even faster and sooner in emerging economies because of the the higher value here, here. The high value proposition. Here, here. I mean, I personally think uh, the impact of electric mobility on on uh, the mobility ecosystem in Africa could be much much greater than what it is in the U.S. or Europe. Now, I'll also um, chime in here. You know, it's an interesting question you ask about kind of disclosing round terms. I mean, it's been um, overall positive for for shift because our customers and based on how our products, our customers rely on our products essentially to manage and operate and keep energy assets up and running, uh, they want to have confidence that the early stage company that's providing them uh, that service that's so critical to their bottom line um, is growing and scaling and will be around. And so it's a great signal to our customers and prospective customers that um, that, that growth and um, that, that future exists for us and that they can be confident in investing uh, you know, in shift technology to support their operations, their critical operations. Um, you know, when people talk about the downsides, I mean, there. well, actually, let me add one more thing. For hiring, especially in markets like Nigeria, where um, so, some certain talent can be very competitive, it's great to have good signals that make people excited mm -hmm. about joining uh, your company. Um, so that's been valuable for us as well. So uh, we've been able to attract more talent as we are doing quite a bit of hiring uh, in this current stage. Downsides, I mean, the downsides can be things like, you know, uh, you know, landlords find out that, you know, you've made a lot more money and, you know, the rent's <laughs> coming around and uh, it turns into a different type of negotiation, but um, I guess that's par for the course, so. No, thanks for that. And thanks for the color as well. Um, so related to that uh, question, Darren, thank you very much, Darren, for that, um, is a question from the audience, um, you know, of, uh, especially given that both of your companies are um, capital intensive, how much of the raise was in debt and how much of it was equity? Was it all equity? Was there some portion of the debt? How does that look for both of you? Yeah, good, good question. Um, so in our case, it was all it was all equity, um, but we will be raising working capital debt on the back of that equity. So, Great. Um, yeah, going out going out to the market and probably so not not quite a one to one DE ratio. So we'll raise a bit less than than the three point five million that we've just raised um, as equity. We'll raise a bit less than that as debt. Um, you know, we're still 
uh, still a bit bit tentative um, about it. You know, following following Series A, but uh, yeah, yeah. So they'll a bit of so I guess both, but yeah. So so that means that uh, you'll you'll answer our phone calls when we call you from untapped. <laughs> sure, absolutely, always, Jim. Great. No, thanks, Josh, for that. Ukwem, what about you? Yep. Um, all of our rounds raise uh, debt while in the form of safes, uh, however you would classify that. Um, gotcha. Okay. And, uh, but we are actually raising additional working capital on the backs of this round. So further. Got it. And what's that ratio look like in, in, the, in your case? You're, you're perhaps a little bit less, slightly less capital intensive than uh, Ampersand, but uh, nevertheless, still quite, quite a bit of capital is needed. Yeah, so after closing this uh, 3.1, we'd likely be doing about an, another million in working capital. Um, but we have a Series A coming up uh, likely in the next like a 12 to 18 months as well. So uh, a few more points to inject capital into the organization. Gotcha. Are you still raising? I know I missed out on it earlier, but. Uh... No, we are not. Okay. So I missed my chance is what you're saying. <laughs> I would, if I can just add something as well, I think it's been really interesting to see the difference in conversations we've had between, um, between say California and, uh, and East Africa um, when it comes to investors and their, and their priorities. You know, I think the, the, the more sort of DCF um, focused, focused investors out here are really keen to see revenue figures go up, see sales figures go up. Whereas uh, I think uh, I think when we when we spoke to the, the um, to the Calif when we speak to the Californians in general, they're a bit like, oh oh, you're interested in um, heading EBITDA positive this year? How quaint, you know? They're they're like like yeah, yes, definitely, sure, increase the volume, but um, that's not the that's not the be all and end all. Um, you know, they're they're we're really you know now able to be much more focused on building out the tech and the systems and the automations and the processes to focus much more on the fifty thousand motorcycles, the hundred thousand motorcycles uh, served by our by our energy network, not sort of nickel and diming over whether we're doing seven hundred and fifty bikes this year or two thousand bikes this year. So that's that's definitely been a, a highlight and a really uh, really interesting difference. I mean, I, look, the, the, the cultural difference between classic PE and uh, Silicon Valley type venture capital can't be more different. You know, the, the winner takes all economics of uh, venture capital in the US just makes the incentives completely different than classic PE. So not at all surprised. And in fact, uh, not at all surprised that some investors might say, don't even think about getting to either the positive, think about growth, think about how you're gonna capture this market first. So um, I, I think um, it's interesting. It's always interesting seeing the two sides against each other or alongside each other. Well, great. Well, thanks for, for those comments. Uh, over to Nima. Nima, would you like to introduce yourself and um, ask your, make your comment or ask your question? Hi, Beth. Thanks, Jim, for um, this uh, discussion. It's super, super interesting and actually lends really nicely into some research that I've been doing around kind of the trends in um, emerging economies that relate to um, the tech space, especially. Um, and, you know, one thing that I find super interesting and slash- And I'm sorry, Nima, where are you based? Uh, I'm based in, uh, in, in London and I'm here in my personal capacity, but gotcha. um, I'm sure you can uh, Google where, where I'm, I'm normally at. Um, 
my question or, or, or comment, and I'd, I'd love some feedback on, is obviously we're seeing that there is an increasing interest in um, Africa and African ecos uh, startup ecosystems from China, India, others. And so I'd love to hear from um, particularly the, the founders on, on, on the panel, um, whether they have actually thought about raising capital outside of the kind of the conventional Western uh, kind of North America, European route part is part one. Um, and part two is, you know, if you had to say what were the kind of the top three challenges facing, you know, capital raising uh, for African startups, what, what would you say? I know, obviously, this is more about the, the, the success stories, um, but I'd be curious to see what, where the bottlenecks are. Is it a lack of interest from the VCs in, in, in Silicon Valley? Is there a you know, lack of understanding about the risks of investing in the African ecosystem, um, limited network of, of local founders? Um, would love your thoughts on that. Uwem, Josh? Yep. All right. So um, we actually we brought in some capital from so from actually a handful of uh, Japanese based investors uh, in this round, and uh, that that interest we were seeing a lot of interest coming in uh, from Japan in particular, uh, but from East Asia in general when it comes to essentially the digitization of basically everything and anything. Um, and that was like a key factor that was quite attractive. Also, our model and our technology being energy technology, there were a lot of um, Japanese companies and stakeholders that uh, could be strategic so that we engage with. So there was some um, overlap there and what kind of support could be provided. Um, as, for, uh, as for challenges, um, you know, I, I often get asked this question about challenges for fund African startups fundraising. You know, I really kind of like to speak from my own stance because I just feel like there's a lot going on in different sectors. I mean, if you're a fintech founder in Nigeria, it's a very different experience than if you are uh, infrastructure, e-mobility, energy, et cetera, in Nigeria or in West Africa. Um, and um, the proxies, the market knowledge, uh, finding the local founders, all of those things kind of come into play. Um, I could say for myself, the challenges in fundraising really came from um, market knowledge and really getting to understand stakeholders and getting around uh, maybe misconceptions uh, about the market. Um, and so there was some bit of like investor education, bringing them into the market, having them speak with stakeholders and customers that had to take place to kind of get around that, that perhaps I might not have had to do if I was in a different market. Yeah, Josh. great, great in insights there, Graham. I completely agree that each each market is uh, is very different. Um, you know, I think in in our case, e-mobility being such a new such a new space, I think such an unfamiliar technology to a lot of investors as well. You know, they they look at a battery pack and say, I you know, I have no idea whether this is the right battery chemistry you're using, or um, whether this is this is fine, or whether um, you know you need a you need a high a far greater um, level of technical knowledge to, to actually get what you say you're going to do. Um, and so having that, uh, having a level of technical confidence um, in our Series A investors, so, uh, so Ecosystem Integrity Fund, they've invested in um, hydrogen 
um, hydrogen aircraft businesses. Um, so some pretty high tech businesses, they're very much plugged into, um, into that sector and, and, um, and have the knowledge base and access to the knowledge base to make those investment decisions. So that's definitely been a, played, a, played a big role as well in, in, uh, in generating the right degree of investor confidence. I would say that, I would say that um, you know, speaking to the earlier uh, question and discussion around how things have gone with COVID, uh, we have seen most of our investors uh, send, in technical, ten, send in technical experts you know, there aren't as many on the ground here in, in Africa who are uh, familiar with e-mobility, but, but at least have some, some local market knowledge, at least. Um, so being able to bridge that gap and just, uh, you know, make sure that I'm not a Russian chatbot um, <laughs> come into our office and actually, okay, so yes, there, there is a physical human being called Josh Whale. Um, you know, there is, <laughs> there is that too. Uh, and to speak to the customers on the, on the front line. Thank you both. That's super interesting. I may just kind of leave you with a part, parting um, thought, which is um, one of the trends that, that I've been seeing in the research that, that we've been doing is um, the increasing amount of not only tech hubs on the continent um, and therefore an, expansive, an expansion of the network and, and potential um, to raise capital indigenously, but also um, companies and, and, and VCs, local VCs like Future Africa, um, that is trying to kind of disrupt the traditional capital uh, kind of investor market on the continent by actually pooling together as a fund um, money from kind of middle upper class wealthy Africans to actually invest in African startups themselves. And so I think that's a really interesting trend and, and, and may hopefully um, reduce some of the risks associated around market knowledge and stakeholder engagement and, and even some of the technical expertise. So, so I'd love I mean, to just add to that. Uh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was, was going to say, yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. You know, we'd really love to see also just uh, some of that, some of the wealth coming out of, um, you know, coming out of the sector, recirculating locally and and really building a local knowledge investment base. So that 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 ecosystem factor is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of room for growth and improvement there. Yeah, just adding to that, lots of room for uh, improvement. I, you know, I just want to echo. Some of the things that were in your question comments, uh, Nima, I, I, I do think that there is an over-reliance on the usual suspects when it comes to um, venture financing in, on the continent and over-reliance on international capital and certainly on the DFIs. And I, I personally believe things such as Future Africa and what they're doing and, and creating other sources of capital as well as other investment classes and uh, investment vehicles to make it more feasible for local investors, whether they be wealthy Africans uh, or even retail um, investors to be involved in investing on the continent. I think uh, that would make the ecosystem much healthier than it is today with the over-reliance on DFIs and international capital. If Great, I can, well, thanks. Go ahead, Darren. If I can just add, just, just in terms of what, what we've seen um, happened in Egypt as well, kind of echoes what's been going on with Future Africa, that um, there's quite a, a strong angel network presence in Egypt. And um, over the last few years, the, the, the amount of capital going into startups in Egypt um, has accelerated. So yeah, I think that's, that's a, a good sign to see um, sort of uh, a wider range of different types of investors starting to invest. In early stages. Yes, no. And I think part of that's going to come into 
somewhat of an innovation around the types of vehicles available for investing. A 2%, 20% venture model isn't going to be the appropriate model for all investors. And so I think there needs to be some innovation and um, uh, testing around different investment vehicles for allowing other kinds of investors to invest. Um, great. Well, thank you for those comments. Um, want to move on to, to Jeffrey. Uh, love the intro and comment or question from you. Hello, guys. Um, I, I, love, I love what Josh is doing. And thank you so much, Jim, for uh, bringing such amazing people to, uh, to, the, uh, to the platform. I run a startup in Uganda um, called Chargeco Technologies. What we do is we are making owning and operating battery-powered devices uh, more affordable and convenient. And why we say battery-powered devices is that we're, no longer, we're not only thinking of um, uh, mobile phones, which is what we're doing. We're setting up charging stations for mobile phones in public places. But we're also looking, like, uh, looking at um, things like power, uh, power storage uh, or ESS um, systems. And, um, and electric vehicles, uh, that includes cars and, uh, and motorbikes. So I have a few questions for Josh, and I am really interested in, in electric mobility. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing is, of course, battery charging, I mean, battery swapping is, is the trend um, with most of the, uh, the e-mobility players in East Africa and even in India. Uh, but then uh, is there an opportunity for um, battery fast charging? So if you look at um, how mobile phones evolved, we had um, phones with, remo with removable batteries where we would swap out one battery when it's done instead of charging it. And then, you know, you'd have an extra battery. But now with fast charging, with, uh, with um, quick charge five, you can basically charge your phone uh, to about 50% in five minutes. Uh, do you see that trend um, coming in in terms of um, in terms of in, in terms of um, e-mobility and particularly for the smaller um, uh, uh, vehicles with small battery packs, two to three kilowatts? And then on the side of um, on the side of, of growth. Do you, uh, what would you choose? Building, uh, building and uh, manufacturing locally or designing and manufacturing abroad? So are, are you taking an OEM, um, uh, are you taking an OEM uh, type, of, uh, type of direction or an ODM type of um, direction? Because I've tried, for example, doing the battery, uh, I mean, the charging stations for mobile phones locally. And trust me, it's not worth it because you're getting all the, all the components from outside, uh, outside the continent. You don't have enough um, labor, um, skilled labor to help with manufacturing. You don't have very good um, partners you can outsource to. And at the end of the day, you find yourself producing an even, inf uh, an even more inferior product um, compared to you know, outsourcing it to a Chinese or German or uh, or a foreign um, contract manufacturer who is very, um, uh, very well equipped with, you know, knowledge and has done this for a while, and they have all the all their ducks in a row. And yeah, so that's basically some of the questions. Um, I had way more because I'm an EV enthusiast and I'm looking to play in this field not only from a charging perspective but also from a battery manufacturing perspective. 
Uh, however, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, Jim, how long have I got? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, if you can I'll, answer the I'll question, perhaps 60 seconds, that'd be great. I'll try. I'll try. Okay. Uh, so fast charging versus swaps, really interesting, interesting question. I think in our sector, we'll, we'll see fast charging come in, uh, come in eventually, but I think we think it'll be a bit about another four or five years until it's um, cost and performance competitive with the, with a petrol, uh, sorry, with the, with the, using a swap system. Um, I think we are looking more towards solid state lithium batteries. I completely agree. I really liked my old Nokia phone where I had, had like three different batteries that I could just change out. I, I actually charge my iPhone about three times a day. So I, I think the current system is inferior. Maybe I've got an older phone, iPhone, but um, uh, I, I would love to be able to swap out the batteries in, in my phone. Um, so I'm just, I'll just put that out there. Um, I think, but I think it's going to be very different for for different sectors. So, like for a for a phone, the relative cost of the battery compared to the value of the phone, it's it's probably about what thirty bucks out of a maybe let's say a five hundred dollar smartphone or a three hundred dollar smartphone. Um, and so, having a fancier battery, just the marginal cost difference is isn't the same. With an electric vehicle, the battery is probably half the cost of the um, half the cost of the product. So those marginal differences in, in cost just make a much, much bigger difference. If your battery costs twice as much, that's, you know, that, that's a, that's earth shattering. Um, and then on, uh, on growth, you know, that's just, there's just no simple answer for that. We do build our battery packs here on the ground in, in Kigali. It makes sense for us to do that. And it makes sense for us at this stage of growth. Uh, EVs are just so, so rapidly evolving that the math is, is it's a lot of crystal ball gazing, you know, it, uh, for example, laser welding of um, cells, you would have to, to spend $3 million to do a production line for that. Now you can buy an off-the-shelf machine for $200,000 and uh, and weld your battery cells into modules. Um, so and that, that just changes every eight months or so. Um, there's going to be, I think now the, the the level of supply also on the battery side is, uh, is the level of demand is more than caught up to the level of supply. So that's also going to be a factor in supply chain planning. But I think it's just something you're going to have to keep on top of and keep uh, running the numbers on and, and evolving and planning to evolve and be nimble. Thanks for that, Josh. And uh, you know, we have one more person um, uh, on the list and then we'll just do a perhaps Rishi, if you can do a quick comment or question, and uh, then we'll do we'll go to final words from Gwen and Josh. Seems like we have some uh, connection issues on your side, Rishi. Can you hear us? All right. Yeah. So we're gonna. Yeah, we're having some connection issues. We barely can hear you, Rishi. So why don't we go to uh, last words from Wim and Josh? You know, any any final words of advice to entrepreneurs out there who are raising in the late, last legs of this pandemic? Sure. Um, you know, I think one of the common themes that I've seen in the discussion today, and I'm glad that I I was joined by Josh on this call, is really about um, you know when you've identified your vision and, and where your company, what your company is really trying to achieve the mission. Um, and I think what's unique about uh, the call today is it's really about like leapfrogging and kind of actually being ahead 
of global markets when it comes to innovation and e-mobility and decentralized or distributed power systems. Um, the best thing that I was able to do and the advice I give to other founders and entrepreneurs is really just early on try to find investors who when you ask them what does the future of name sector look like, um, that it really does align with your vision and your mission and basically working from there, working backwards from there. Um, that's been helpful in finding who's a right investor, who's a good fit, and helping me actually move on from conversations and not wasting too much time quite, quite early on. And it also means that when you actually bring them on board, um, that we're really working towards the same thing and there's not you know, conflict thereafter. Um, and so that's been key in the pandemic because there's a lot of uncertainty uh, that people are experiencing or feeling. And so if we can be a bit more confident and certain in what the future of our respective sectors or industries look like and what our roles, um, what your role as a company or my role as a company looks like in that sector, um, it's really been uh, critical to making fundraising uh, a much smoother process. Thanks for that, Ram. Josh, last words? Ooh. Thanks, Uwem. That was great. I've just written that one down for myself too. That's a, it's really good advice. Uh, I, I think for us, you know, I, I, I guess if our experience is anything to go by, then you know, just you know, never give up. I think we've really sort of disproven the idea of you know, um, fail fast. Uh, I think uh, when you're trying something hard, um, you know, stick at it. We, I founded this company in, in 2014 and I didn't get a salary until I think 2017 could have gone a bit faster uh, overall. I think I'm not not to say that that's just the way it had to be, but um, yeah, just be be really resilient. I think there is uh, you know take take heart. There is a lot of um, I'm hearing there's a lot of uh, dry powder. There's a lot of there is a lot of investment fund funding out there. Uh, if you can persuade an investor to travel or or get through the um, you know get through the the the, the COVID restrictions and use virtual tours and, and, and so on, then um, then do that, um, do what you can, be, be creative about it. Um, but uh, there's definitely, yeah, light at the end of the tunnel uh, for sure. There are, there are VCs out there that have uh, X, you know, millions of dollars to deploy and they've only got so many years to deploy it. Um, and they're, 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 they are hungry. So get, get out there. Um, get out there and go for it. Got it. So find investors that are mission aligned and don't give up. Thank you both for all your incredible feedback and congratulations again for closing your rounds. And thanks to the audience for joining us and your contributions with questions and comments and experiences. I hope to see you next week. We'll have another session, same time, same place, 9 a.m. Pacific time, uh, 7 p.m. East Africa time on Clubhouse with another topic about entrepreneurship and investing. To follow us, find us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Untapped Global. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day and good evening. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks.